miscommunication can be a, a it can be a dangerous thing if you get a prescription from a doctor and there's miscommunication as to what that means that can be dangerous right if you mess up on a doctor's order or sometimes miscommunication might be humorous i came across this from a small town newspaper and for those of you younger generation newspapers were these things that we read and uh, if you had to advertise something, there was nobody, nobody had Craigslist or eBay. You put an ad in the paper if you had to sell something. Back in the dark ages when everything was black and white and uh, that kind of world. But, uh, but anyway, this newspaper was a small town paper and man put an ad in the paper. And on Monday, this is what it read. For sale, R.D. Jones has one sewing machine for sale. Phone 555-0707 after 7 p.m. and ask for Mrs. Kelly, who lives with him, cheap. Okay, on Tuesday, on Tuesday, the notice, it read, Notice, we regret having aired in R.D. Jones' ad yesterday. It should have read, one sewing, mach- one sewing machine for sale, cheap, 555-0707, and asked for Mrs. Kelly, who lives with him after 7 p.m. <laughs> so on Wednesday, notice, R.D. Jones has informed us that he has, he, he has received several annoying telephone calls because of the error we made in his classified ad yesterday. His ad stands corrected as follows, for sale. R.D. Jones has one sewing machine for sale, cheap. Phone 555-0707 and ask for Mrs. Kelly who loves him. Thursday, the newspaper ran this. Notice, I, R.D. Jones, have no sewing machine for sale. I smashed it. Don't call 555-0707 as the telephone has been disconnected and I have not been carrying on with Mrs. Kelly. (laughs) Well, there's one thing that is not miscommunicated in the Bible and that's the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That is clear and undeniable and clearly communicated in the Word of God, that Jesus Christ on the third day rose bodily from the dead. And that's why we're here today to celebrate. And I want to draw your attention to the Scripture this morning in Matthew 28. And we're going to read verses 1 through 10. And if you would be kind enough to stand, and I'm going to read, and you can follow on the screen, or if you have your Bibles open, we'll be using those. We use those here. And this morning we're going to read this passage from Uh, Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10, and it's on the screen. And The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, 
Lord, we celebrate the risen Lord today. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Speak to us through your word today. Encourage our hearts. And we ask this in the risen Savior's name, Jesus our Lord. Amen and amen. You may be seated. Paul would say that if Christ had not been risen from the dead, then what we're doing here is a big waste of time. He said it's in vain. It's empty. If Jesus did rise from the dead, then it is clearly the most significant event in human history. It answers profound questions of life. It gives us a view of our destiny and a creation and all that that we long for as humans, human beings. But on the other hand, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, if it's all a big fairy tale, a big hoax, then we are the most to be pitied as fools. Josh McDowell may be a familiar name to some of you, and he was someone who's written wonderful books on evidences for the Christian faith. And he reminds us, uh, one time he was lecturing in another country at a college and he was asked by a student uh, to tell, them the, tell him the reason why um, he is a Christian, uh, why that he is a believer. And Josh McDowell says, after studying more than 700 hours on the subject of Christianity and investigating its very foundations, Josh McDowell says, the reason I am convinced that Christianity is true is for this single reason among many. I came to the conclusion that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is either one of the most wicked, vicious, heartless hoaxes ever foisted on people, or it's the most important fact of history. And in Matthew chapter 28, I want us just to look briefly this morning at several stages of this experience of the believers who discovered the wonderful truth that Jesus Christ was true to His Word. He rose from the dead just as He said. And so if you have your Bibles to Matthew 28, we'll just kind of be staying there for the most part, maybe turning a page or two. But I want us just to focus on this gospel account of the resurrection of Christ. Notice in verse 1, it says, Now after the Sabbath toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb. These women were lingering at the tomb. They lingered at the cross and they came early to the tomb bringing spices that in the Jewish tradition they would anoint the body. In Jewish tradition in accordance to Jewish law on burial customs, the body, uh, the deceased body was wrapped in a linen cloth and about a hundred pounds of various spices mixed together that formed kind of a gummy substance were applied to the wrappings of cloth about the body, almost kind of sealing it with these, with these spices and this substance. Now, that's much different than what the Egyptians did. The Egyptians uh, uh, embalmed, as many times we will do even today, but Jewish tradition did not do that. And so these women were there early in the morning, and they're walking, and Mark chapter 16, 13 tells us that they were wondering how they were going to move the huge stone in front of the tomb. There was this massive stone in front of the tomb and uh, how they were going to maneuver that. And the Bible says that, uh, that Jesus clearly taught that he would rise from the dead. But those who were his followers 
I mean, think about it. I mean, that is, that is hard to fathom, hard to believe. But Jesus told them exactly what would take place. In fact, over in Matthew's gospel in verse chapter 16, verse 21 or 22 is an example that it says, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them that the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will rise on the third day. You remember when he told the uh, Pharisees, those religious leaders, one thing they just went nuts over when he said, destroy this temple. And of course, they thought he was talking about the physical temple, but he was referring to his body. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it up again on the third day. Jesus continually taught that. And so these women were going to the tomb early in the morning, not expecting to find what? A body. They were prepared to anoint a dead body. That's what they, that's what they were prepared for. And the significance of the resurrection, there's several things that we need to be reminded. This may not be new, but it just helps to be reminded. Because if you're like me, you have gone through and you may go through seasons where you doubt and question things that you believe. That's not unusual. But I find that as I go back, I cannot explain away the historicity and the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's a big deal. That's why we're making it a big deal. We make it a big deal not just once a year, but we make it a big deal every Sunday when we gather to celebrate on the Lord's Day commemorating the resurrection of the Lord. We're celebrating the risen Savior. See, if Jesus rose from the dead, it does several things. It proves that He is the Son of God. John 10, 17 and 18 said... Jesus said, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down or to allow myself to be put to death. And I have authority to take it up again. Listen, a guy rises from the dead and walks out bodily. I'm going to pay attention to what he has said and what he says in the future. Amen? I mean, he's got my attention. You got me, all right? It verifies the truth and authenticity of the Word of God. The Old Testament talks about the resurrection. In fact, in Psalm 1610, there's a prophecy given to Christ that Christ fulfilled in speaking about the Messiah where it says that you will not abandon me to the grave nor let your Holy One see decay. Again, one of those multiple prophecies talking about Christ and in this case, the resurrection, the fulfillment of prophecy is one of those areas that uh, uh, concerning Jesus should, again, be one of those things that enables us to have great confidence in the Word of God and in Jesus Christ. One uh, scientist who studied these things said that it is, that states that the probability, listen to this, that the probability of eight, just eight Old Testament prophecies, prophecies being fulfilled in one man would be 1 times 10 to the 17th power, which is 1 with 17 zeros. That's just one man fulfilling 8. That's the improbability. Now listen to this. He says that the probability, to kind of put it in something we can understand, would be like this. It would be the same as bearing two silver dollars somewhere in the state of Texas and one silver dollar painted black. 
Then after blindfolding someone and telling him he can walk anywhere in Texas, that person must first, on the first try, pick up the black silver dollar. Now that's kind of crazy, isn't it? But that's the impossibility of just one man fulfilling eight Old Testament prophecies. Jesus fulfilled almost 300, not almost, 300 prophecies that are recorded in the Old Testament. Jesus fulfilled 60 major prophecies and 270 related prophecies. That is something that should give us a pause to have confidence in saying, wait, there's something unique about this man, Jesus. Also, the fact that the resurrection is a big deal is it assures us of our own resurrection. Paul said, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, or sistren. I want you to know that just as Jesus died and rose again, and we believe that God will bring with Jesus all those who have died in Him, so too we will live because He has rose from the dead. He is the first fruits, the Bible says. He is the prototype of those who will live after death. Jesus conquered the grave as we sung about. He conquered death. He put death out of business. He rose from the dead. And that gives us hope that when we die, there is a future and there is a resurrection for those who are in Christ. It's also proof of a future judgment. Paul said in Acts 17 that there is a day when Jesus will judge the world with justice by the man that He has appointed. And Paul says that God the Father has given proof of this to all men. How? By raising Him from the dead. Anybody can go around. Listen, there's been a lot of nuts in the world claiming to be messengers of God, right? Cult leaders, and they will sacrifice their own people, and just craziness. But not one of them has ever rose from the dead. They're all dead. Muhammad is dead. Confucius is dead. Buddha is dead. David Koresh is dead. Jim Jones is dead. They're all dead, but there's one who made the claim and backed it up by rising from the dead. And we can have confidence in that this morning. It's a big deal because it empowers us for our own life. Paul would write in Romans 6, We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ, listen to those words, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So it's a big deal. And it also points to our own future resurrection. Peter says that it's through the resurrection of Christ that we have a living hope. So here are these women in Matthew 28 verse 1. They're walking toward the empty tomb and they did not, again, they didn't really take his words seriously because they're carrying the things to, to, to anoint his body. They thought he was dead. But secondly, in verses 2 through 8 of Matthew 28, not only did they think that he was dead, but secondly, they heard that he was alive. Look at verse 2 again. And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord. How would you like that assignment if you were an angel? That'd be pretty cool to be the announcer. Descended from heaven and came, and what did he do? The angel rolled back the stone, and I love this. What did he do? He sat on it. I don't know about you, but that just that's, that's an angel with an attitude. I like that. I mean, he just kind of 
I just kind of imagine him sitting there with his legs crying, you know, just kind of, you know, maybe filing some snail, just waiting on the show up. I love that. <laughs> you know, when you talk about this, and this is, this is to me some things that I find helpful in my confidence that, that uh, Paul, Little wrote a, Paul Little wrote a great little book called Know, know Why You Believe. And it just, he mentioned some things in there concerning the historical information that we need to consider when we talk about the resurrection of Christ. Think about things like this, the Christian church. Think about that the Christian church and the explosive growth that took place around the year 32, something happened that caused these men and women to give their lives and for this, this movement that started with just 11 and just a small band of individuals became a global phenomenon. What happened? What was it that captured their imagination that they were willing to give their lives for this cause? I believe it was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. One of the things that you clearly hear, the apostles throughout the book of Acts are constantly referring to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That resurrection was their north star. They could not deny it. What about the Christian day? I mentioned this earlier. You had these Jews worshiping on the Sabbath, which is Saturday. And then what caused them and this Christian movement to change and begin to worship on the first day of the week? What was it? I think it was nothing other than the magnitude of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that they gathered together and say, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus when we gather together as his church. These were Jews that did that. They were inclined not to do that. That went against every religious and cultural inclination by, by beginning to worship on the Lord's day. What about the Word of God? It contains six independent testimonies. We've convicted people and put them to death for far less than that in our courts around the world. Three of them were eyewitnesses, John, Peter, and Matthew. So there's all sorts of historical data, but I, I think this is really interesting, is some of the facts concerning the empty tomb. And I, I'm sure these aren't necessarily new, but it was good to kind of go over them and rehearse them. You know, people will have theories about what happened. Explain it away. I don't know about you, but when I see a lot of times uh, this time of year and I see on some of the cable channels, they all come out with their, you know, documentaries and this, that, and the other about the life of Jesus or I love these titles, In Search for the Real Jesus, you know. It just, oh, that, yeah, we've been waiting on CNN to help us to do that. Uh, I, you know, it just gets a, listen, here's a news flash. If Christianity is on the decline, why do they ramp up the programs to an audience that doesn't exist? Don't buy in to that, don't buy in that we're as outnumbered as you might think we are. First of all, we're the only ones that have our leader ruling and reigning from heaven. And was it the prophet Elisha? Was it Elisha who said there's, when he had prayed for his servant? Was it Elijah or Elisha, Don? I'm staring at you, hoping you get me out of my, my mix-up here. But it's one of those. Remember his servant? He prayed and he looked up into heaven and he saw all the angels encamped around them with this massive army and was ready to overtake them. And he said there's more of there's more of us than of the enemy. Guys, we need to have a vision 
that we are not beholden to the crazy cultural nonsense that's going on in our world where up is down and good is bad and bad is good and the, it's just rewriting everything that is sacred. There is more, and I don't mean this in some political nonsense because we know that isn't going to do it. It's only going to take a cataclysmic revival of the gospel being preached and we are not going to be kowtowed into saying that we're going to have to change and compromise our values or let's say not forget our values. How about the word of God? We're not going to kowtow and compromise the word of God because it is the gospel announcing a risen Savior that only is going to produce change in people's lives. So let's not be intimidated. We serve a risen Savior who is already enthroned in authority. That's free. That doesn't even count with my time this morning, all right? But there's people who would say, what happened to that body? And they came out with theories. They'll say, well, the disciples must have stolen the body. They must have stolen the body. What's interesting is that idea is so preposterous, Matthew doesn't even attempt to refute it. Uh, He doesn't even deny it. Look at uh, verse 11 through 15 of Matthew 28. They were trying to figure out what took place. In verse 11, Matthew 28, it says that as uh, when they uh, came and discovered what had taken place, it says, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. In other words, the body is gone. Remember, look back in 2765. Look at the orders that Pilate gave them. He says, you take those guards and you make that tomb as secure as you can. It was for their political interest. They did not want anybody to have access to that tomb. They did not think that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. That wasn't in their mind. They were concerned that somebody would break in and steal the body. So they made it as secure as possible. But guess what? God had other plans. And so verse 11 of chapter 28 says that, As they were going, behold, some of the guards went into the city, and they told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders, they got a late night call. They had to get there and scramble to figure out what they were going to do. They had taken counsel. And what did they do with those soldiers? They gave them a big wad of money and told them to keep their mouths shut. That's what they told them. And they said, listen, this is what you're going to say. The disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Now, right there, if you know anything about history, that doesn't make sense. First of all, Roman guards do not fall asleep at their posts. Do you remember when Paul and Silas were in the Philippian jail? And there was that spiritual, that physical, that earthquake, and the jailer was getting ready to commit suicide. Why? Because he feared that the prisoners would escape. He knew that he would be put to death because he, he, you know, he let the prisoners leave. Roman guards do not fall asleep. Okay? Otherwise, they'd be killed. They were a highly disciplined group of people. And do you think they called the guys in, you know, just the... the do you think, not think they put their best men around this, this tomb? This was a big deal. No, they didn't fall asleep. And besides, how can they bear witness to something that happened while they were asleep? Does that make sense? It's like telling the cops, my neighbor came in and stole my TV while I was asleep. Did you see him? No, I was asleep. I mean, it doesn't make sense. But remember, people aren't thinking rationally here. Um, So you're going to tell me that while these elite Roman guards fell asleep, 
a group of fishermen, a tax collector, and some women overpowered them, rolled away a two-ton stone, took the body out. All the while, these guys were asleep. I don't think that even makes sense. You see, it's, it, it presupposes that the disciples were involved in some big scheme and hoax. But as we taught several weeks back on a Wednesday night about the resurrection, when you look at the lives of those disciples and how they died, it just doesn't make sense. Stephen was stoned to death in Jerusalem. James, the son of Zebedee, beheaded in Judea. Philip was beaten and thrown into prison and then crucified in Upper Asia. Matthew was killed in Ethiopia. James, the son of Alphaeus, at the age of 94, was beaten, stoned, and had his head crushed by a club. Uh, Matthias was stoned and beheaded at Jerusalem. Andrew was crucified. Mark was dragged to pieces in Greece. Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. Paul was beheaded in Rome. Thaddeus, or Jude, was crucified. Uh, Bartholomew was beaten and then crucified in modern India. Thomas was killed by a spear in India. These guys are taking the gospel out early on in those, those years. Luke was hung by the neck. Uh, many believe in what is in modern-day Britain. Simon was crucified. That's in Fox, book, Fox's book of Martyrs. In other words, it, it, why would they allow themselves to be killed and murdered for a scam? Does that make sense? Does that, does that make sense? Some of you remember when I read this a few weeks back, but I, I just find it so telling to read it again, was some of you remember the name Charles Colson, And Charles Colson was one of Richard Nixon's... Uh, uh, henchman that was involved in the Watergate scandal. And in Charles Colson's book called Loving God, he, he and I'm not going to read you the whole thing, but he gives this connection between what happened in the Watergate scandal and what took place in the resurrection. Uh, let me just read you a couple of things. He said, history reveals, he's talking about human behavior. History reveals that after the criminal investigation of the White House began, it began the end of the Nixon presidency, and it was only a matter of time before we would all be discovered. They discovered that there was a cover-up, and we were doomed. Here we were in the most powerful office in the world, and what was at stake? A small band of hand-picked loyalists, no more than 10 of us, could not hold the conspiracy together for just a matter of two weeks. And he says this, making the connection to the disciples. He says, after just a few weeks, talking about those men around the White House, trying to hold down this lie and the cover-up, he said, after just a few weeks, the natural human instinct for self-preservation was so overwhelming that the conspirators, one by one, deserted their leader, the president. They walked away from their cause turn their backs on the power and prestige and privileges. I mean, they were abandoning that like rats on a ship, all right, sinking. Now listen to what he says, very telling. Take it from one, giving the comparison to what happened there, human nature trying to cover a lie with the disciples. Take it from one who was on the inside looking out of the Watergate web who saw firsthand how vulnerable a cover-up is. Nothing less than a witness as awesome as the resurrected Christ could have caused those men, the disciples, to maintain 
their, to their dying whispers that Jesus is alive and that Jesus is Lord. Here's the point. Men and women will die for what they believe to be true, though it may be a lie. But men and women do not die for what they know is a lie. It goes against human nature. Do you think out of that list that I read or some of those disciples, do you think that right before that sword was going to come down on their neck, that one of them would have screamed, Wait! Andrew's got him in his garage! They didn't say anything. Why? Because in the words of 1 John, who the Apostle John, he says, we testify to you what we've seen with our own eyes, what we've heard with our own ears, what we've touched. What did he tell those disciples? Touch, touch me, put your hands through the holes, touch my side. You can't convince somebody when they said, listen, I I was there. They didn't steal his body. Some say, well, what about the the Jewish authorities and the Romans? They, they, They must have stolen the body. Well, think through with that again. That doesn't make sense either. What was the goal of those who opposed Jesus? They wanted to just snuff this thing out. So do you think that as on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 were being saved... And suppose they said, you know what, all right, we're, we're going to have to end this thing. How could they have ended this thing like that? Drag that body through the streets and show that, you know what, it's all a big scam. They didn't do that. It was in their own self-interest to do that. They didn't have the body. They didn't steal the body. I like this one. The women went to the wrong tomb. All right, think about it. They knew where they were going because they were going so early in the morning, it was probably dark, and they, they knew where they were going. They didn't. And let's say they did go to the wrong tomb. Do you think Peter and John and the others would go to the wrong tomb? No, that doesn't make sense either. What does make sense? That Jesus rose from the dead. And let me just say this too. I thought this is interesting. If this, was, if this account was human fabrication, that in the Jewish mindset of that day, Women's testimony was not credible. Okay? It was not credible. They really had very little to no legal standing. So if we were going to fabricate a big scam this big, the last people we want to be our main witnesses are who? Women. But see, that's why it's so believable. Because this thing wasn't planned out. This thing wasn't thought through that. It happened the way it happened. God raised his son up. Some have said, well, he didn't really die. It just kind of was like in a coma and then he awoke. And Some of you know the old radio country preacher, J. Vernon McGee. And I will not try to talk like him when I read this quote. Even though I'm quite tempted to, but I won't do it. Someone wrote him a letter, and they call this the swoon theory. Somehow he was, bodily, body had suffered so much blood loss and, and all that that he was kind of appeared to be dead. J. Vernon McGee, in his kind of simple country style, was, uh, read a letter from a woman who asked, her, asked Dr. Vernon McGee about this. And Mr. Me, uh, Dr. Vernon McGee said in his answer, He said, Dear sister, 
Beat your preacher with a leather whip for 39 heavy strokes. Nail him to a cross. Hang him in the sun for six hours. Run a spear through his heart. Embalm him or wrap him up in claws and, and, and spices. Put him in an airless tomb for three days and then you see what happens. It didn't happen that way. Jesus died and Jesus rose from the dead. What about the appearances of Christ? I've kind of alluded to some of these. I won't take time, but uh, probably one of my favorite is in that Paul accounts in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, when he says that Jesus, over a 40-day period, appeared to more than 500 individuals all at once. And some would say, in trying to say, well, those disciples were hallucinating. They wanted him to be alive so bad, they hallucinated. Well, you and I might have our own little individual hallucinations, and maybe after church we'll compare notes what we hallucinate about, okay? But 500 people don't hallucinate the same thing at the same time. That's why Paul makes mention of that. They all saw him. In fact, Paul said that many of them are still alive to this day. You can go ask them. Jesus appeared and it was witnessed. Peter Marshall, who was a chaplain of the U.S. Senate, said this, talking about the women, uh, about those who discovered him, and talking about that stone that uh, I said earlier, I believe was maybe two tons at least. I like this quote. He said, The stone was rolled away from the door, not to permit Jesus to come out, but to enable the disciples to go in. Think about that. He didn't need that stone rolled away. His power took care of that. But the last, the last proof that I guess I would mention here is, and it's, you can read on through verse 9 through 15, is probably the last thing that I would mention is the testimony of the disciples themselves and how that that affected those individuals in such a great and powerful way. One example that I think of is James. We've been studying James uh, on Sunday mornings, and we'll pick that back up. And you know, James was the half-brother of Jesus. And the Bible says that Jesus' own brothers, that when he was uh, growing up, they did not believe in him. But it was only after the resurrection that James half-brother, full-blooded son of Mary and Joseph, became a believer. Why? Because big brother died and rose again. That changed his life. Jude was another half-brother. Changed their lives. They became different people. And one of the ones that to me stands out probably the most is the apostle Peter. Peter probably stands out the most when I think about the most cataclysmic change in personality. And so Peter, here was uh, Peter. Remember Peter? He, he, he was not always, he didn't always bat a hundred. I mean, he was always, he was never quite exact. And yet Peter, who denied Christ, how many times? Three times. He denied Christ three different times. And he one time suggested that Jesus should not go to the cross, but that he should kind of, you know, we need to do something else. And Jesus said what? Told to Peter, who had just earlier declared that he was the Messiah, hit a home run at that time. But then Peter says, 
Jesus, I wish you'd quit this cross talk. I wish you'd quit talking about dying and suffering. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, because Satan's always anti-cross. And I wish I could somehow go back in time and have a recording of Peter and his testimony, but I think we got something better this morning. We actually have a special guest of the Apostle Peter here with us today. I'm going to invite the Apostle Peter to come in, and, and I want him to share personally his story this morning. morning. What a great day. What a great day. Can you handle this for me, sir? Thank you. What a great day. Wow. It is so nice to be here. You know, this day reminds me of when I came to the end of myself. It was two days before this day. And I came to the end of myself. At least that's the way Andrew put it. You know, it was like fishing with too short of a fishing line. And the thing is, I'm thinking about Jesus always talked about us dying to ourselves. For illustration, it would be like filleting all that stinking, rotten, fish gut, pride out of ourselves. But he would would keep doing that to me over and over again. You know, you'd think I would have gotten used to it. Oh, but there was nothing that was going to prepare me for that night. You see, Judas turned on him. We knew he was going to. We just didn't want to know. The guards came and arrested Jesus. And then I thought to myself, well, I'll find a way to free him, even if it means my death. And I, and I actually believed it. After I left the courtyard, denying him three times, I realized the only thing that I actually saved was what I hated the most, myself. I made my way back to the disciples' house. Even though I didn't deserve to be there, Mary, the mother of Jesus, offered me some water. I I couldn't even look at her for what I've done. Felt so bad. I just crawled into a corner and slept. Oh, I, I must have been dreaming. I mean, my mind was playing tricks on me. I had to be dreaming. There was this dark, faceless thing surrounding me. And here, my clothes, my dress, it was filthy, fish got stuck stinking, soaked rags, and I clung on to them because that was the only thing that I had. And then this creature started, these hands started digging at my clothes, tearing them off of me and throwing them on the ground until I was naked. And then there was a large net that encircled me And gathered us up. And here I'm surrounded by the most hideous, ugliest fish you ever wanted to see. Realizing 
I was one of those. I was one of those. Here, the thing gleared over us and picked up the net and took us to a trash pit and dumped us out. It was on the outside of Jerusalem. And here, while we were in the pit, the flames started burning my skin. Oh, I watched in horror as the flames charred my skin and it fell off in pieces on the ground. It was like when the hands were ripping away my clothes. But this, this was an indescribable pain. And as the hands were pulling me back to the flames, I'm digging and crawling through the garbage to the edge and grabbing the rocks. And then on the edge, there was a foot. Strong. Tortured. But beautiful. As the hands were pulling me back, I lunged and grabbed the ankle from the wound. The blood ran down my arms, across my head and down my back. And then, after that, a hand came down to pick me up, my skinless body, and laid me on the damp, cool sand. At this time, at this time, the thing was gone. The pit was gone. The flames were gone. And I laid there. And my, my skin started growing back like nothing ever happened. And then my rags turned into white linens knitting themselves back together, covering my body, clean, spotless. I was awoken by voices that were on the roof. I climbed the ladder, went up there, here. I ended up seeing ten of my brothers, Jesus' disciples, sitting there sobbing, looking at Gagatha Hill, and here... There were three men being crucified. I couldn't, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't cry. I, I didn't feel anything. It was like, now what? Jesus is gone. There's nothing but darkness. That's when I came to the end of myself. I walked around the town the next couple of days asking people, wondering what might happen. And then I was hearing things, and, and it couldn't be. It couldn't have happened, but it did. Jesus' tomb, it was empty. Just when I thought the light of the world was gone forever, oh, this lady runs up to me, and she says, I've seen him. I saw him. Alive. I was like, no, 
And this couldn't be possible. I ran to the tomb. And there, I found the spiced linens. But there was no body. I made my way back to the disciples' house. And we gathered there. And then suddenly, Jesus appeared. He ended up showing us the wounds in his, in his hands and in his feet and in his side where the spear was stuck into him. We sat down and we ate. And he did that just to, to prove to us that he was truly alive. But I kept glancing at his feet. And then he vanished. But, but before he did, he looked at me. Well, we ended up going to Galilee two days later. And let's see, it was James, John, Nathaniel, oh, and Thomas. <laughs> Who could forget him? <laughs> and, and I, we all went fishing. We were out all night. And it really felt good to be back on the water. But we didn't catch a thing. And here, as we were coming back in, there was a guy standing on the shore, and he hollered, Do you have any fish? And we replied, No. He says, Throw your nets out the other side of the boat. And then I realized, I knew, all of a sudden our nets were so full that they were breaking at the seams. We couldn't even pull them in. And then, then John, John, he screams, it's the master! It's the master! And without thinking, I threw myself into the water and swam to the shore. <laughs> Once I got there, Jesus was making breakfast. I helped him. But I didn't say a word. Soon the others gathered with us. We ate, we laughed, we joked around. And then I kept glancing at him. And when we finished, when we finished, Jesus came over to me and he says, Simon, now, that was my old name, but he says, Simon, do you love me? And I answered, yes, Lord. I figured I'd just say try to get all of this done with, with as few words that I possibly can, thinking it would all be better with just saying that. And boy, was I wrong. And then he said, feed my lambs. And then he looks at me again and says, Simon, do you truly love me? And I said, yes, Lord, I do love you. And then, for the third time, Jesus asked me again, Simon, do you love me? I couldn't, I couldn't even say anything right at that time. I couldn't get the words out because it dawned on me that he asked me, how many times do I love him compared to how many times? I denied him. And then I said, Yes, Lord. 
I love you. You know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus looked at me with tears in his eyes. And he put his arms around me. And the rush of light passed through me. Light of the world is back. And then he says, feed my sheep. And all I did was nod. You know, I could have died a thousand times to try to make that right, but it would have never been enough. It would have never been enough because he already did it for me. He did it for us. My fear was that Jesus didn't love me anymore. But you know what? He loves me. He loves me. And that's all that mattered. Father, this morning as we Lord, remember and reflect on, Lord, not only what you have done, but what you are doing. This morning, I know there are people here that need to, Lord, have some resurrection life in them. Lord, there's a deadness in their life. They've got a big two-ton stone that's keeping them inside. But Lord, we remember your words that you, of why you came. You came to bring us life and to have that life more abundantly. Lord, all those words would have just gone down into the history books of another sage or teacher But what makes those words so different is that you walked out of the grave. You proved that you were indeed the Son of God. And yet with all that evidence, all that, those witnesses, 500 disciples giving their lives, all those things, Yet, we still have great unbelief and doubt. That should just show us that redemption does not come by winning arguments. It doesn't come by the accumulation of facts and information and evidence, even though those are tools. Redemption, changed heart, newness, Eyes to see the living Christ only comes as a gift from above. It only comes when dead, spiritually dead men and women are made alive by a sovereign God. All because it pleased them to do so. No merit on our part. Just because you, O oh God, pleased, were pleased to glorify yourself by reaching down into the dregs of humanity and pulling us out 
and making us new. You said that you are the way, the truth, and the life. There's no one that can come to God except through you. And so, Father, I pray that this morning, young, old, rich, poor, black, white, Hispanic, child, youth, it doesn't matter. Lord, if there are those here tonight, this morning, that need Jesus, it's as simple as ABC, that I accept, I accept you as my Savior. I believe that you died and rose from the grave, that you conquered death, that you paid the penalty. I believe that you paid the penalty for not just sin generically, but my sin, my sin. And that's why I confess that I'm a sinner. And I confess that Jesus is Lord. And that if I respond in that way, your word promises that your spirit, the spirit of Jesus will come inside of me and live that will bring new life into this dead heart that will give me a new eyes and new ears that will give me hope in my hopeless situation and not just now but one day wherever it is whatever the situation when I draw that last breath and the last photo of this earth leaves my mind and in an instant I am with you. It's all because that you died. You were buried. You rose from the grave. And you said that all those who desire to come to me, I will in no wise cast out. You said that your yoke is easy. Your burden is light. It's not weighted down with religion just to have a relationship with the one that made us. And all we have to do is accept it, believe it, and confess it. And that's a simple promise that you've made. And the reason that we know that you keep your promises is because you promised that you would rise from the dead. And you did that. So this morning, in the midst of our doubts, in the midst of our depression, midst of our feeling like death is all around us, we believe. We believe. I don't know about those 20 Coptic Christians exactly just because they were part of a religious faith, whether they were born again. But I know that many of them, maybe most were, I don't know, only you know. But on their last breath, they declared that Jesus is Lord. We may never face that, and I pray that I don't want to. But I have to believe that maybe they saw what Stephen saw in Acts 6. 
as the stones were coming at him and, being, and putting him to death, he looked up. He looked up in the midst of his hell. And he didn't just see Jesus. He, he, saw, he didn't see Jesus sitting. He saw Jesus standing. That Jesus was paying attention to what he was going through. And this morning I pray that those who are here that feel that they're all alone, that nobody knows. They may be surrounded by loving family and friends, but yet in their heart of hearts, the pain is theirs alone. And they feel like nobody, nobody. May they see Jesus standing, standing, looking this morning, a risen Savior, that knows when a little bird falls to the ground, how much more does he know what I'm going through today? So Lord, today, for those that need to have faith in Christ for the first time, I pray that your spirit would work in those hearts. For those of us that need just a renewed (laughs) reminder, that all is not lost, all is not hopeless, that Jesus Christ forever lives to make intercession for us as believers. He's constantly at work, but He's working as a king, ruling over this universe. And there's not one molecule, there's not one comet, there's not one random act that happens that the sovereign King of kings is not an absolute, total, full control of. For He is the God who works all things together for good to those that love Him and are the called according to His purpose.